This is Lee, and you're listening to the FemSouth Podcast. And we're embarking on a six-part series examining the impact of the Dobbs decision in states like Alabama, where I live, that have a near-total ban on abortion. We're looking at this issue through an intersectional lens, knowing that access to abortion isn't a single-issue item. It impacts pregnant people's access to health care, pre- and postnatal care, infant mortality, women's economic and social status. It is intimately connected to sex education and consent, birth control, domestic abuse and violence, mental health, bodily autonomy, and on and on and on. Our aim is to keep this conversation in the public without fear or shame. I'm Jamie Manson, president of Catholics for Choice, and I'm calling on all the pro-choice faithful, Catholic, former Catholic, co-conspirator, to speak out in this moment and say you can be pro-choice and a person of faith. Salam. My name is Aliza Cosme, and I am a co-executive director at Heart. As Muslims and maintainers of justice, we believe that reproductive justice is inherently Islamic. I'm Dr. Sherry Warren, Minister for Women's and Gender Justice at the National Ministries of the United Church of Christ. We support a full range of reproductive options for people to make the best choices for themselves and for their families. I'm Alina Ramsey, the Executive Director of Faith Choice Ohio. We believe in solidarity and in drawing the circle wide for reproductive justice so that all of God's creation may flourish with dignity and bodily autonomy. I'm Glenn Northern. And I'm Shira Zemmel, and we co-direct National Council of Jewish Women, Jews for Abortion Access Campaign. Reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. We do this work because of our faith, not in spite of it. Welcome back. This is our third episode in our six-part series, Investigating the Impact of the Overturn of Roe in Alabama. This episode is focused on a faith-based perspective on reproductive justice. What quickly turned into a three-part series includes interviews with four different faith leaders. We're going to be talking with Reverend Letitia James, Reverend Katie Zay, retired Reverend Jenny Phillips Allen, and Minister Renee Adcock to help us explore the origin of the anti-abortion movement and amplify pro-choice voices of various faiths that are all too often drowned out. We're also going to debunk the myth that you cannot be a person of faith and support reproductive justice. That is simply not true. So hi, Lindsay. Hi, Meta. Hey, Lee. Hey, Lee. Hey, Meta. Hey, Lindsay. <laughs> so at the top of the episode, we heard a clip from Sacred's video, a faith-rooted response to the Dobbs anti where leaders from different faiths and organizations talk about their commitment to reproductive justice. We would like to thank Reverend Letitia James for giving us permission to play the clip. So for us to get started, I would love to hear what you both thought about that clip. What were your initial thoughts after listening to it? Yeah, I think one of the big reasons that 
I wanted to do this podcast series with FemSelf is that I like to be surprised at things I don't know anything about. I like looking into areas that I have no exposure to and maybe also confront my own preconceived notions of what I think is going on and then again be surprised that maybe that's not exactly what it turned out to be. So listening to to a Jewish woman, a, a Catholic woman, a Muslim woman talking about being pro-choice was utterly surprising to me. And again, sort of, you know, confirmed that this is why we're doing this podcast. We are sharing these voices of people that we thought had a different opinion about this topic than they actually turned out to um, to uh, to have. So I am just so uh, encouraged by uh, by listening to to this clip and getting us started off in this on this trajectory for this series. We're exploring so many of the the fallouts, the effects of abortion bans. And to me, looking at the root of the cause was so important. And initially, I thought we would tackle sort of the faith-based perspective last because it seemed so hot to touch and it just kept coming up. And I don't think that we can solve this without people of faith. Um, I think a, a very minority view is is driving a lot of really harmful legislation, and I wanted to I wanted to have faith in faith, basically. I, I wanted to hear from people and to know that there are clergy and there are communities that are helping women and fighting the good fight. That it isn't all the the bad news headlines that we see all the time. So, I would guess I was looking for hope. Have faith in faith. I really like that, uh, Lindsay. Not <laughs> bad for an atheist. <laughs> okay, so we ended up with three episodes. We didn't intend to, but after really diving into this uh, conversation and, and reaching out and meeting all these different people, it turned into three episodes. And so I want to talk a little bit about what we hope to accomplish and, and maybe why, why it has expanded so much. I think again, I was it was my curiosity that that uh, really drove this for me. Like uh, knowing we were going to talk to an ordained Baptist minister about uh, her perspective on being pro-choice, I was just so curious to find out how she reconciled those two different schisms, if you will. Because again, you have such a preconceived notion of what a Baptist is which definitely doesn't fit into our everyday narrative of, of, of being somebody who's typically pro-choice. So I was just super curious to hear what she had to say and how and what kind of arguments she put forth. That, that was sort of my driving force of diving into this first episode with Reverend Katie Say. I'm still on the mailing list for Planned Parenthood back in South Carolina, and they were doing a training for clergy when uh, the rumor was that Roe was being overturned. And I joined, not realizing it was for clergy, and stayed on the call. And I'm so glad I did because the the group Sacred that was part of it had these signs, like yard signs, that said, abortion bans are against my religion. And I was like, that needs to be amplified. We need to talk about that and explore that more. And what does that mean? And I, I think... That just really helped me shift my focus from feeling adversarial and like this is 
a fight between two sides to needing to shift to fight together. And I really want this message to be more mainstream. Yes. And I think maybe this is a good place to have a quick disclaimer. We never want to put forth one religious perspective, but we are predominantly talking to Christian faith leaders because we do see the anti-choice movement taking place within a specific religious context. And so that's the one we're trying to address here, at least in the United States. So with that being said, though, I'm very excited to get started and hear what Reverend Katie Zay has to say. So let's get to it. So we're here with Reverend Katie Zay. Katie is an ordained Baptist minister and CEO of Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, otherwise known as RCRC. She was named one of the top justice-seeking faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress. She is co-host of the Kindreds podcast and author of two books, Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories of Resistance for Today's Revolution and A Complicated Choice, making space for grief and healing in the pro-choice movement. As a strategist, author, and speaker, Katie is working to make the world a more just, compassionate place. So Katie, we're so excited to have you on this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lee, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think to get us started with the podcast, I would love to hear how you got started with reproductive justice as a Baptist minister. I always like to tell people that my call to ministry came in the walls of an abortion clinic, which I'm sure I'm not the only person who has ever said that, but it does feel like a rare thing to say. It's not usually how ministers talk about that sense of call, that sense of purpose to doing sacred work, but that really was the case for me. So for context, I was at Yale Divinity School. I was in my first year and I had just come from college and I quickly realized I was very burnt out on school, which is not great when you're in a three-year program. And I think part of it was the classroom just felt so ethereal and intellectual. And I really wanted to do something that was a bit more embodied and, and helping people. That's why I was in seminary. And so the organization I run now had come to campus and were offering a training on How do you walk alongside somebody who has discovered that they have a pregnancy, that they don't know what they're going to do about it? And I loved it. Like it was such a great training because it was very practical, but also deeply theological and ethical and asking the big questions of life, but within the context of a person's, you know, real life. And it just felt like, ah, this is why, this is why I'm here. I want to do this kind of work. So I thought, well, I've done this training and like lots of trainings you might never use it again. And I didn't want that to happen. I really wanted to put these skills into practice. And so I felt like the first step for me was to actually enter an abortion clinic because I'd never been inside one. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be helping people who might be experiencing an abortion themselves, I need to at least see what it's like. So I contacted the Planned Parenthood Health Center that was just across the street from the seminary where I'd seen protesters every week and would always make me really mad. And they were so gracious enough to let me come and just do a tour. And I loved it so much that I asked them if I could come volunteer and help the nurses in the recovery room because they were always pretty short staffed there. And they were like, sure, you know, come and pass out ginger ale and saltines. And that became part of my weekly rhythm was going to volunteer there on days I didn't have class. And then one day, 
they were down a staff member at the clinic and they needed someone to be the person who would walk a patient from the waiting room into the procedure room and basically be the person to hold their hand and and just be a reassuring presence. And I was a little nervous about doing that, but it kind of felt like, if not me, then who? Because there was nobody there. And so I reluctantly said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So I ended up really journeying alongside people that day through their abortion experiences, which was a very sacred and kind of awkward experience because I didn't know what I could offer them, you know, during this moment that was very intense. And then I realized all they really needed was my presence there. And so I asked going forward if that could be the place where I volunteered because I actually really loved being with the patients in that way. And that experience was just incredibly sacred that these strangers who were in a very vulnerable moment were open to me being with them through this this critical life-changing moment and that I could just be a comforting presence with them. And it really did feel very sacred. And I think that moment of realizing the, the religious people who were very much like me were standing outside yelling at patients and the holy work was happening within the clinic. And I thought, I have to figure out a way to bridge this divide. You know, th- it just didn't feel right. There was so much dissonance there. And so that really felt like my call to ministry. That really was the moment. I knew that I had some sacred call, but I didn't know exactly what it was until that experience of volunteering. And so for me, it's always been deeply spiritual because it's been about really following the model of of Jesus who accompanied people during really difficult moments of their lives and asked what they needed and just held presence for them. I felt like, well, if this isn't ministry, I really don't know what is. How was the seminary program that you were involved with? How did they respond to your work? Did you get pushback from your um, from your program, from your professors or anything like that? Or were they really supportive of what you were doing? I don't remember speaking too publicly in classes about this work that I was doing. However, when I was in my final year of seminary, one of the privileges of being in your final year was you had an opportunity to preach in chapel. And that was a huge honor to to do. And so I requested one of the spots and I actually spent my sermon talking a lot about my experience within the clinics. That kind of was like a coming out uh, experience for me publicly talking about what that work had been like and why it was so sacred. And all I remember was people coming up to me, telling me how grateful they were. And at that point, if people were unsupportive, I don't think I really cared because I had such a conviction in the work that I was doing that more people needed to be doing it that I don't think any criticism would have stuck with me because I just, I felt so strongly that this was a place that the church was missing and that I was someone who could help bridge that gap. I I wanted to talk about the stigma that surrounds abortion and it's interesting that it sort of did it didn't come up in your seminary until until you were given the space to talk about it. I wanted to point out that we know from polling that the abortion bans aren't popular even in Alabama. Uh, most people disagree about Roe being overturned and 55% think abortion should be legal which is surprising to hear because there's this false narrative that to be Christian, especially in the South, it means you're anti-abortion. So there's this false sense of choice 
between being religious and supporting abortion rights. So I'd love to hear if you could talk more about abortion stigma and why does something that's so personal seem so politically charged? I think what those statistics show is that people are a lot more nuanced in their thinking about things that people can wrestle with, you know, ethical questions about abortion while also understanding its importance for people to access it. And I think, and this is connected to abortion stigma and something I didn't share about my experience in the clinic. That's really important because this really was the moment for me when I realized how much abortion stigma I had was walking into the clinic for the first time, you know, having to drive up to the parking lot, have protesters approach my car to try to stop me because they assumed I'm a, you know, female bodied person that I was there to have an abortion. And so it was disturbing on a couple of levels. On the surface, it was disturbing to be the subject of such hatred and vitriol. For one, I had never really experienced protesters, you know, aiming their insults at me specifically. So that was very unnerving. But also, I realized that there was part of me that wanted to say, I'm not here to have an abortion. I wanted, I didn't want to be seen as a patient coming in to have an abortion. And I had to really wrestle with, why did I care? What did it matter? And I realized that even in the work that I was doing, even though I was there to volunteer, even though I was pro-choice, even though I'd done this training, there was still part of me that felt separate from people who experienced abortions themselves. And I realized that I still had my own judgments about it. And I think that you know, recognizing the the biases and prejudices that we have, whether it's about race or gender or sexual orientation or class or whatever it is, it can be a very shaming experience. And I think that's what keeps us from naming it and addressing it. And so once once I could remove that and see that it was actually a politically created uh, phenomenon uh, by the white Christian nationalists to 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 keep people silent about abortion and really separate it for who I was as a person, I could really dive in and start examining like, where had this come from? Why did I feel this way? What did I truly feel about abortion? How would it feel if I was there to have an abortion? Maybe I was going to need an abortion, right? And like really diving into the uh, discomfort of those questions in an ongoing way has really been essential. And so I, I often talk about abortion stigma as you know, similar to internalized sexism and racism and homophobia and all of these things, which is, it's just part of the air that we breathe for, th- for the reasons that you alluded to, you know, there's a narrative that, you know, to be a Christian or like AKA a good person, that you should be pro-life in the way that you vote, in the way that you think. And if you're not, there's something morally corrupt about who you are. And so we all are introduced to and and surrounded and inundated by that message, regardless of your your personal beliefs, what religious community you were raised in, or if you were raised in one at all, it is just so prominent. I mean, white Christian nationalism has done a great job of getting this message out early and often over the last 50 years that we all are exposed to it. And so it's our collective responsibility to examine how that shows up within ourselves and then to do that work of dismantling it. Um, so it's not something to be ashamed of, but it is our responsibility to confront and deal with it. And like I said, it, it's ongoing just as the work of anti-racism is ongoing. And in a lot of cases, abortion stigma ties together interlocking systems of oppression. And so I think it actually reveals a lot about all of the biases that we have 
in this culture um, because so many things kind of come to a head when we talk about abortion stigma specifically. And I think it it feels politically charged because it is politically invented and it's not organic to any particular tradition. It really has been the manufactured messaging of political operatives who are steeped in white Christian nationalism who have been talking about this as a single issue for decades. Um, and so that's why I think it's it's so confusing when we start feeling the emotions connected to it because it does feel deeply personal and it has a political function to keep people voting in a certain way to amass power by a certain group of people. Um, and it's very, very effective. And so it's actually a very complicated issue to talk about. And I think starting the conversation is really important for doing the work of how we're going to get ourselves out of the situation that we're in for the long term. Just for our listeners, maybe who don't understand or haven't really heard this perspective from a Christian point of view, but when you say white Christian nationalism and abortion being a politically invented issue, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? So I think it's important to go into the history around this because it'll help us understand how we got here. So the origin of my organization was a group of clergy, white men mostly, who were helping people get access to safe abortion care before the Roe decision. It was a really robust robust network and it operated for the six years leading up to Roe. And these clergy were providing referral networks to safe abortion providers. They were also advocating publicly for abortion to be legal in their in their states and in the country. And so I think it's just important for people to know that that people like me have been doing this work for a really long time. I mean, I would argue that from ancient times, if you look at the book of Exodus and the Hebrew midwives who were doing this kind of, you know, going against the state to protect the reproductive dignity of people, this is an ancient tradition. But within the U.S. history, you know, it's way before the Roe decision, folks were, were doing this work. And the Roe decision itself was very popular among most religious groups, including the Southern Baptists at the time. Um, you know, Catholics had a pretty pro-life stance at the time. But if you look at almost everybody else, mainstream, mainline denominations and all Jewish traditions, Unitarian Universalists, you can see the statements that were written around this time by these denominations really supporting the Roe decision as a as a public health issue even while they were nuanced about the ethics around it, which is something I would argue is, is a good thing. Um, so just prefacing all of that <laughs> with that reality and that truth, because I think that that's often, you know, forgotten about that. This was actually a, a popular decision or a supported decision at uh, from most religious communities at the time in the U S. So like what happened so there are lots of historians that have studied this in, in different theories, but one that I have looked into and talk about in my book is is really around the re-election of Richard Nixon. Um, that was the first time that we can see the the political operatives trying to figure out a way to get a voting block to re-elect Richard Nixon. And what they discovered was that there were a couple of religious, well, three religious groups who typically don't agree on anything, but they all share their sexism and racism and, and homophobia. Um, and those are Roman Catholics, evangelicals, and Mormons. They don't agree on anything theologically. However, they have some shared political motivations. 
And abortion was one of the issues that would bring those three groups together for voting. So if you look at the, even the messaging of the Nixon reelection campaign, you see the dog whistling around abortion and also busing at the time. And it was quite successful. It worked really well. And so, you know, later abortion kind of arose as the most salient political issue to organize around because it's really hard to organize politically around racism. That doesn't message well. However, messaging about saving babies messages really well. That's something that people can, you know, more or less agree with um, versus like, we don't like black people and black people shouldn't have rights. So you could sort of see this evolution that that abortion became the center of their platform because it worked so well. And I mean, there was an evolution over time. And of course, this was never their end game. This was a tool for them to start broaching into a much larger political agenda. And you can read about this. This is in the 1980s. White Christian nationalists are talking about things that we're seeing right now, like like taking over courts and district courts overturning federal regulations. We are seeing that with the Miffy Pristone case. Um, really wanting to enforce a theocracy in this country. These are the ideas that they were planting in kind of a fringe way in the 1980s that are not so fringe now. And a, the abortion issue was simply a way for them to amass political power, get people elected into office, and and really get us to where we are now, where we have the Supreme Court that we do, the judges that we have, the Congress that we have, even though those people do not represent the majority of voters, in terms of their views about abortion, it has been so effective politically that we are now in the situation where we're in, where we are seeing them go far beyond abortion specifically in their agenda. And we're seeing the other parts really come to fruition in today's times. So I think that really gets into a couple of things. One is that there's always seems to be a dichotomy here. Like you either are religious and anti-choice and there's no room for those two things to coexist. And I think like you're saying, that's definitely politically charged. But when you ask somebody in the church who feels strongly that they can't be Christian without being anti-choice, how do you respond to this, something like that? Well, we know that th this is just factually not true. From polling, we know that the majority of religious groups, and not all religious groups are Christian either, which is important to say, um, when you look at polling, including among Catholics, that the majority of people of faith are supportive of abortion being legal. So, we just know statistically that that's not true. Sometimes the dogma of a religious tradition and the beliefs of the people who are part of that tradition are very different. And so, I think sometimes there's the the statement that we can point to or the leader we can point to who might hold a particular viewpoint. And then there are all of the people who make up that tradition. And just like with any other issue, there's going to be a spectrum. And so I think it's always important to say there is no one theological view here. There's always been nuance around abortion and people have different beliefs around. I mean, honestly, the question of when life begins, what life means, what happens when we die, these are ancient, ancient questions that philosophers and theologians and human beings have been asking for millennia. And so anytime someone tries to say that there's only one valid viewpoint on any of this, I, I find that to be incredibly arrogant because 
these are the key questions around the mysteries of life and death that we will never understand as human beings. And so I always try to state that first because I think it helps people see just how politically motivated this false sense of of the binary around this is because it forces the hands of people when they're voting rather than doing the nuanced work of of ethics and philosophy and theology of of really allowing for mystery to be there. And of course, that binary follows a lot of other religious beliefs too around what it means to be a gay person, for example, or to be trans. I mean, we see this like very clear delineation um, that honestly serves nobody and doesn't reflect the reality of our lived lives. And I think that's where people often start a deconstruction process is when their own life experience or the experiences of the people they love bump up against the stated dogma of their tradition. Hi, Fems. This is a sponsor-free production made right here in Alabama in the Deep South, where we are seeing the impact of the overturn of Roe in our communities. If you would like to support our efforts to keep producing quality content and interviews with grassroots organizations and community leaders, please consider donating. You can donate at FemSouth at Patreon. You can find our PayPal and Venmo links on our link tree and Instagram and on our website at femsouth.com. You can also reach out at femsouth at gmail.com. We appreciate your support. We cannot do this without you. Katie, you've talked about dissonance. That's been a word that's come up. And uh, hypocrisy is also one that stands out for me. And I think a lot of people, when we start realizing how, especially in Alabama, there are so many needs that are unmet Mm -hmm. um, and why the conversation has to move from abortion rights to reproductive justice, right? And how we're caring and being compassionate for people. However, it seems like the 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 place that the anti-choice movement's coming from is when they seem to act like they're on the moral high ground, right? Mm-hmm. They're coming from a place where they're playing the role of judgment. Can you help us deconstruct that high ground that they're on? And, and can people of faith reframe the quote-unquote baby killer attacks from a faith perspective? Is there scripture that you like to cite when you reframe this sort of attack? Yeah, so the the moral high ground is assumed to be like we are saving lives by being anti-abortion. And we just know that that isn't true. If you look at this country compared to the rest of the world, we have increased rates of maternal mortality that are unexplained and unstudied, especially among Black women. So what does it mean to be pro-life if you are not concerned about the fact that when a Black woman, no matter what class or state or educational background she has, is more is three times more likely to die than her white counterpart? There's nothing pro-life about that. And so I think there, that moniker gets broken down pretty quickly once you start asking the questions. And, and to be fair, not all pro-life people are the same. There are plenty of people who hold a pro-life view who are doing the work of caring for people and, you know, providing young 
families with things that they need. So I don't want to paint them all in in one single stroke because that would be like doing what they do to me, right? Which would be to call me a baby killer. So I want to be nuanced in the the way that I talk about the pro-life movement because it is also nuanced. However, those who are using the language of being pro-life to enact policies and to pass legislation that limits people's access to reproductive health care, regardless of, you know, what reason they might need an abortion, which frankly is no one's business. That is a pro-death, <laughs> pro-death stance, I would say, because we know we, we, we can see the stories already. And this has always been true, honestly. People who are needing abortions for all kinds of reasons, they're they're on the brink of death before a doctor will intervene. And and just because your life is preserved, does that make it a good life? Right. We want to talk about reproductive thriving and flourishing. And that means that, you know, giving birth should not be or being pregnant shouldn't be a death sentence for you or for the baby that you're going to give birth to. Right. Like we also have to talk about infant mortality. So I think the moral high ground is is such a farce when we're talking about people for whom the only priority they have is to pass anti-abortion legislation or to ban abortion by itself. It's just cruel is what it is. And it's punitive. And we see Im- embedded in so much of this leg- legislation now, like a very punitive stance of incarcerating people. Incarceration is not pro-life. <laughs> so I think for me, it, it doesn't take much to kind of poke holes in their stance. And I think most people are aware of that. And yet it doesn't seem to matter because it still works politically. And that is what is so frustrating about this. You know, people often ask me as a, as a minister, what scriptures do you point to? to justify the work that you do. And the reality is that the scriptures don't mention abortion anywhere. If anything, there are some scriptures that point to the fact that, especially in the Hebrew Bible, there's a delineation of the value of fetal life versus the life of the pregnant person. And it's clear. And that's why for so many Jewish traditions, having access to abortion care is is actually a, an issue of religious freedom for them because in many cases, not in many cases, in certain cases, having an abortion is very much in alignment with their religious teachings. So when I talk about what I see as supportive of reproductive dignity, there's not one story I can point to, but what I see, especially in the model of who Jesus was, someone who centered the person in need, regardless of what it was, regardless of what the society said, regardless of what the law taught, and asked them, what is it that you need to be healed? And he provided it to them and without judgment. If anything, the judgment was for the structures that kept people from getting what they needed to be healed. Um, and the one story I often talk about is the story of the hemorrhaging woman, and I can share more about that. But for me, that really is a story about a woman who had been suffering, had accessed everything that she could to heal herself. It didn't work. And she was ostracized. And then she actually knew what she needed to heal herself. And Jesus wasn't even the catalyst for her healing. She reaches out and touches his garment. And that's the catalyst for her to be made well. And he didn't even know what happened. Women know what they need or pregnant people know what they need to be made well. And regardless of what society says, people will will reach out for what they need. And Jesus affirms that in that story. And I, I just think that that's such a powerful model of, of the kind of healing that he did. And that's the story that I point to for myself. Some people say that that's a, it's not specific enough. I'm like, well, then you're out of luck because there's nothing more specific in the Bible about it. But for me, like really looking thematically at 
you know, who Jesus was and the message that he gave. It really wasn't about condemning people for the situations they were in, but instead asking, what is it that you need and how can I give it to you? Yeah, and I think that really is a good segue into talking about the focal point of your book, A Complicated Choice, Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. Because in this book, you chose to center the stories of people versus trying to get into a more scripture-based argument, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you think or whether you think that's been effective or not? It's important for me as someone who has not experienced an abortion to center people who have in any work that I do around this. So especially a book about abortion, this was an opportunity to hear the kinds of stories that we often don't hear from either side of the abortion debate. And I I talk about what I find very frustrating about the stories that we do hear is there's one that says, you know, this abortion I had was just, was just a healthcare decision. I never think about it. And then one that says the, the abortion I had was the worst thing I ever did. And I regret it every day. And those are stories that are true. But most of the stories that I know from journeying with people and talking to people over the last 20 years about this is that there's a lot more nuance there. And I wanted to make sure that people felt like they could own their abortion experiences, whatever that meant, and still feel like just because they had complicated feelings about it, or maybe experienced some grief or a sense of loss, that 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 didn't make their abortion experience bad or wrong. It just made it a deeply human experience. And so what I wanted to do with this book was really give people an opportunity to give readers the opportunity to examine their abortion stigma and confront it through the narratives of real people um, whose stories they might not have heard before or the kinds of stories they might not have heard before and also tie them to all of the structural things that make being a pregnant person so difficult in this country, regardless of what decision you make, whether it's to have an abortion or choose adoption or, or parents, especially if you don't have access to resources. And so I, I think, I don't know if it's been effective in terms of changing people's minds who are already very steeped in anti-abortion ideology. And that really wasn't why I wrote it. I really wanted to help people who are kind of struggling saying, well, I, I feel like I'm pro-choice, but I feel uncomfortable about abortion, like to give them a chance to examine that. And hopefully by the end of the book, feel more compelled to be part of the pro-choice movement because of their faith and not in spite of it, to feel like they were, you know, empowered and had language and a framework to be more active and vocal to show that there are so many people who support those who are in need of an abortion. Um, And so what I think it's been effective in just based on the anecdotal stories I've heard is that it's helped people have conversations that they haven't had before. And one of the best parts of that has been hearing about mothers and daughters talking for the first time, mothers disclosing their abortions to their daughters that they never heard about. Like breaking that silence is, is going to go so far in challenging the abortion stigma that we all have. And I, I do think when we take abortion out of the abstract, because it's never abstract and into the personal, it, it it helps us connect both our head and our heart about it and really lean into the kinds of values like compassion and care for one another that so often get erased in, in the judgment that's around people who make the decision to have an abortion. Um, some of the words that um, I've written down to, to circle back to would be 
you know, judgment and punitive and also balancing that with wanting to to help and wanting to do good and uh, and having good intentions but maybe needing to be a bit more informed so maybe that's a good segue to talking about fake clinics or quote unquote crisis pregnancy centers there are over 50 fake clinics in Alabama which has you know we're quite a rural state we covered this in episode 2 so access to maternity care is very restricted. Out of 67 counties, only 21 are considered to have adequate access to, to uh, maternal care. But we have these 50 fake clinics, which have no medical licensing or regulation. They're not subject to HIPAA privacy laws, but they do receive funding, millions in funding. So I wonder if you could talk more about how these places operate, what their tactics are, and, and what their connection is with churches or with religion. Mrs. Pregnancy Centers, like other things I've discussed, are not all one and the same. And so right. I want to preface this with saying, you know, I, I have strong feelings about it. And I've been challenged by some folks like in the adoption, indus- not industry, adoption advocacy work, that sometimes these clinics do provide services that are meaningful. And they might be the only service available to people who need diapers and things like that. So I'm not saying that they don't do any good, but the big problem with them is the lack of regulation. So the fact that they are able to present themselves as if they are a medical care provider and prey upon vulnerable people who, you know, might be young or even can afford a pregnancy test, right? That's often the things that they will use is like a free pregnancy test or a free ultrasound to get people in the door. And so that that tactic of like setting up specifically in places where lots of the people who live there are are poor or young is one of their tactics. And that feels very manipulative to me because again, when people are vulnerable, they are more susceptible to the tactics of something like a crisis pregnancy center that's going to, you know, lure them in with with the offer of something free that they need, but then while they're there, will receive the messaging that abortion is harmful to them. You know, oftentimes they will talk about abortion as not just spiritually wrong, but like that it will create health issues for you down the road. So they're often giving information to them that's inaccurate. Also, sometimes they will they will do ultrasounds and then tell people they're farther along in their pregnancy than they actually are, which then people think that they don't even have the ability to get an abortion where they are. So these are very deceptive tactics. And again, I can't say that every single one of them does this, but these are things that have been have been found to be true. And they will often set up near an abortion clinic also um, so that people might get confused about where they're supposed to go. So all of it's sort of like, it's just very deceptive. And if they really felt good about what they were doing, they could be a lot more upfront about the fact that they, you know, don't provide abortion care or referrals to abortion care that they are, you know, specifically for people who want to continue their pregnancy. And I honestly would have no problem with that. That's freedom of of speech. That's nonprofit work. Like I might disagree with their mission, but if they were being a little more upfront and honest with people, you know, just people who are interested in continuing their pregnancies could go there. And I think that that would clear up a lot, but that obviously is not the case. And as you said, they are funded so much more than abortion clinics. I think I looked at this maybe six months ago, and it's probably even worse now because so many abortion clinics have closed, but I think it's like five or six times the number of dollars go to these 
places. And a lot of them do receive large amounts of money from religious groups. So, and and not just that, but often state money is going to fund these groups. So if you live in a state that has like the choose life license plates, that is state money going to these crisis pregnancy centers. And then that becomes a separation of church and state issue because our tax dollars are going to fund these clinics that are not actually clinics at all. And I find that to be perhaps the most problematic part of what they of what they do from a structural level. So I, I find that to be in- incredibly troubling. And yeah, just the fact that, that there's such a disproportionate amount of money that goes to them. And I think part of it too, is that some philanthropists don't even really know what it is that they do. And might, it might sound good to them. Oh, well, you're providing pregnancy resources. That sounds great. Not knowing what their actual motivation is, which is to dissuade people from getting an abortion and and trying to get them to continue their pregnancies. And also sometimes they have relationships with adoption agencies, which is also troubling because the adoption industry is also an, a, a one that's very racist and can prey upon vulnerable people. So there's, it's like a big giant mess. It is a big giant mess. That's yeah. I, we don't have any questions written down about the adoption side of, you know, at being one of the, you know, options, uh, but that is getting more attention and more funding and legislation that supports it here in Alabama. Um, and that is troubling. And I think it's important to state this, that continuing a pregnancy is not a medically neutral decision. <laughs> pregnancy itself can be very dangerous. There are there are many things that make pregnancy difficult and I think for for people to act as if that that stage itself is not significant is a real mistake and a lack of understanding of the t- how taxing pregnancy is on your body. But and and I mean just being trying to be a worker and being pregnant, right? Like there are plenty of people who've who've lost their jobs because they're pregnant. Not to mention childbirth itself and postpartum recovery. You know, we were talking about maternal mortality. It's like, even if, even if adoption is what a person decides, and very, very few people choose adoption, by the way, statistically, it's very small. Even if that is what you desire to do, there is no guarantee that the pregnancy and the birth and the postpartum period are going to be healthy for you. Um, and especially given what you were just saying that many people don't have access to quality maternal health care or prenatal care. We're really asking people to do something that is potentially life-threatening for them. And I think that lack of seriousness around what it means to be a pregnant person in this country and a birthing person in this country and a postpartum person in this country is anything but pro-life. So I want to talk about patriarchy. I think given the fact that most major religions are patriarchal, i.e. they worship a male God, father and son, paternal relationship. How does that patriarchal lens impact the way that we talk about reproductive justice and faith? One thing I did early on in my advocacy work when I was specifically doing maternal health care was to talk about that there are two stories in the scriptures where a woman does die in childbirth. They're not stories that we find in the lectionary, you know, meaning that they're not stories that are covered by denominations, which means you don't always have to preach about them. But there are there are two women who die in childbirth. And so we have those examples of like what it means to lose your life giving life. And I think all of us should read those and know those and struggle with what they mean. 
because that 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 lived reality is there within our tradition. And what are we going to do about the fact that that's still continuing now? I think that that's the challenge, you know, and I, I find I think that there's more nuance around even the birth of Jesus that we don't talk about because so much of the the folklore around the manger are, are really not scripturally based. It's sort of a sanitized version that we've created. But I think that even with that, we could probably trouble that a little bit and think about what that actually was like for her and for for the community there. And that she was, I, I have often said that the Christmas miracle is that Mary survived the childbirth and that she was able to live and to parent Jesus through his adulthood till the end of his life. And how different would his life had been had she not been part of that if she had died in childbirth. And I mean, she's the one who prompted his first miracle. She is essential to the Jesus story, not just as the mother, like the one who gave birth, but the one who parented him throughout his entire life. And so uh, I think these are things that perhaps men don't pay attention to and women's stories are few and far between in the scriptures, but they, they are there. And overlooking them and not spending the time to really ask these deep questions, I think, is such a missed opportunity. And I think that's why it's so important to have different people and leadership of faith communities, you know, not just gender, but all of the life experiences that we all bring, because we're all going to read these stories differently. And I think that that's really beautiful. And that's what it means for the scriptures to have relevance and to continue to speak to our realities. Now, we have to interpret them with fresh eyes. And that requires different kinds of eyes on the scriptures talking about what they mean. Yeah, I think from you, when I think about biblical stories, I think about the birth of Jesus and that there's no mention of a midwife helping Mary give birth to Jesus. And what is the impact of not having that important person being present in that story and just essentially erasing all of the feminine qualities of God and the feminine attributes of of these stories. Which is interesting because many people say that the Holy Spirit is a feminine presence in the Trinity and the concept of Sophia, the wisdom that we see in, in texts that are not canonical, meaning that they didn't they didn't make it into the the, the Bible. That was a choice. But there there are mystical traditions that really do celebrate the divine feminine and see, you know, the importance of the balance of masculine and feminine energies, you know, within within the deity itself. And even if you go back to Genesis, there's a sense of like no gender for God and even a sense of they, right? Like it's the way that we talk about it is so reduced to like the lowest common denominator. And I think that goes back to the point I made earlier about embracing mystery, because if you look at the totality of the text, there are allusions to God as the mother hen, there are allusions to God as giving birth. There are, you know, the they God in the beginning, they are there. It's just that they are overlooked. And if you're not somebody who is trained in reading scripture, you might not, never know that they exist. And if you, if you think about the Christian tradition, very few people had access to scripture. Very few people knew how to read until recent times, really the last few hundred years. So we've been relying on the tradition of, of educated men to tell us what the scriptures are and not to make it too much of a tangent, but 
the tradition of Mary Magdalene, who is one of the most powerful women in scriptures. Her story of being a prostitute is absolutely not scripturally based at all. It was the decision of a Catholic pope who conflated her story with two others. And, you know, who cares if she was? But like her whole sexualizing women or focusing on their sexuality has been a way for the church to disempower women's leadership for millennia. And she is a perfect example of that. If you look at pop culture references to Mary Magdalene, they're all about her being a prostitute rather than being the first witness to the resurrection. She is the first Pope, (laughs) y'all. She's the reason that we have the story. She was the one entrusted to carry the sacred wisdom forward and to tell the disciples about what happened. And instead, we focus on her sexuality. I think this is really interesting because what I love about the RCRC website rcrc.org. You've got the abortions welcome page and you have a lot of support for clergy and for faith leaders for them to deepen their understanding because so much has been edited out over the millennia, like you said. So, I mean, the Apocrypha exists and, Mm -hmm. you know, women's stories have been literally stricken from the Bible. So, uh, can you talk more about RCRC and that approach to you know, supporting clergy and supporting people in in learning more about and what their responsibility is in reproductive justice. I think what we find, and this is true of my own seminary experience, is that clergy are not really trained in how to speak about this issue. Like I said, it never came up except for when I brought it up in my seminary experience. And so there are many clergy and religious people who want to be more active around this. They understand that this is a politically charged issue and they don't necessarily feel equipped with the language or the messaging to talk about it in a way that they're going to feel confident about when they get pushed back. And so one of the things that RCRC has done is draw in leaders from, from different traditions to talk about like within their particular tradition what this means, what are the teachings, what are some of the values around this so that other clergy can feel equipped when they feel compelled to talk about this, that they feel confident in what they have to say and kind of can make it their own based on their own particular faith experience. And and that way, you know, we want people in the pews to know that if they have an unexpected pregnancy or experiencing a miscarriage, that their clergy person is someone that they can go to. I mean, clergy people are trusted advisors for many people about many, many things. And I think many people feel like they couldn't go to their faith leader about their abortion because it's never talked about. And it's just implied based on all the things that we talked about with the culture that, well, you're a clergy person, you must not support this. And so often that isn't the case. And so I think we're equipping clergy, yeah, to be public advocates, and that's important, but also to serve their communities better because they are often like the first people that someone will go to, you know, for help. I mean, that was true of the clergy consultation service. That's why it started was that clergy were being asked to step in and help. And so we want to make sure that people are able to like really serve the needs of their communities, have done the work to examine maybe their own abortion stigma, and then be resourced and where to send people for the kinds of services that they need. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I really love your website and all of the resources that you have for clergy, but also for people who are going through an abortion, who are thinking about 
people who are thinking about having an abortion, who's going through it, and then afterwards, how to process that experience um, with love and compassion for self. And I think that approach is a model that people can take into their congregations and feel good about because it's so spiritually based. Can you talk Mm. a little bit more about that? We created Abortions Welcome with Faith and Women because we knew that the the road decision was coming down. We knew that that was a reality. We knew that people were going to be navigating trying to find abortion access, you know, virtually using their phones. And that for people who are spiritual who wanted support, they were often going to land on anti-abortion sites that might pose as pro-choice resources, just like crisis pregnancy centers do. So we wanted to invest in creating a website that was very upfront about who we were and what our stance was, that we are, you know, non-judgmental, we are pro-choice, like here's who we are, and make sure that they had access to the the medical and legal resources that they would need, but also the spiritual resources. Because again, what I've found in talking to people is that no matter how much support people had through their abortion experiences, everyone felt isolated. We thought, what's a way to break isolation? You know, creating resources for people, spiritual rituals, readings, music, just we wanted to create a virtual space for people who might not be able to go to their friend or their partner for for care, but we could be kind of walking alongside them virtually through the experience. And also that people have the power within themselves to like lead their own experience. They might just need some ideas around how to make sense of what was going on. And so we've gotten a lot of good feedback about abortions welcome being a missing resource for so long that people will often say, I wish that I had had this when I when I had my abortion. And just recently, we've updated it with some new things. We want it to be a living site that we know there are things that are gaps for us. And so we want to continue to expand that as we learn more about the people who are using it and how we can address kind of this ongoing evolution of, of difficulty in accessing abortion care and that that itself is something that needs to be healed because it can be very traumatizing, you know, to have to cross state lines or, you know, be told no, or have to come up with more money. We want to make sure that we're caring for people in a really holistic way through, through that website and all the work that we do. So as far as resources that are out there, you've literally written a book on it. Um, Can you talk about with a complicated choice, how uh, people might be able to find the courage or the tools to speak up about creating change or uh, questions they have or other sort of things that are taboo in their congregation or in their communities? In addition to sharing abortion stories, which I think is really important, I also wanted to lay out for people what I think the steps are for them to start this work of really interrogating their abortion stigma and then how they can translate that into their communities and to get involved. And so I walk people through what that might look like. And I also link to resources and websites and activities that people can do to really start diving into this. And as I've said, I really think that this is an inside job to start and that it really does require people like doing some internal work And then maybe having conversation within their own communities. Because I think so often we want to do something out there in the world and forgetting about how important that community work is. And honestly, that's how people change. It's usually through interactions and conversations that we have with people we know and respect and care about where we're more open-minded in 
maybe considering a perspective that we haven't before. And so if, if folks are looking for that, it's the very last chapter of the book that just kind of walks you through a process that you can do. And there's also a great organization called Sacred. I know you all have talked with them too, but they are a wonderful resource for like having an actual process that faith communities can go through through a training together on on how to start doing this work. We know it isn't easy and it requires support and encouragement and it can be very difficult. You know, I don't want to forget about how challenging this can be, especially when you get started. So making sure that you have the support of an organization like Sacred or RCRC or, you know, just support within your community is really important because this is going to be a long, a long, long, long fight, right? It's going to go beyond my lifetime. And so thinking about how we sustain ourselves in this work long-term is essential and also caring for ourselves as we do it because it's not easy. It's good to hear there are resources out there and we're not alone. I know this is how the the intention may be to divide us or to silence us. And it's good to know that there's so much support out there. Um, and we'll definitely share a lot of links in the show notes too. But I wanted to say we we always try to end the conversation on a positive note. And would you share with us and our listeners, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is being in community around this and realizing that it's not up to any one person, me included, to figure this out. That there are many people who have been active in this struggle for a long time, that there are being there are people being cared for and helped that we might ne- not know about, that there are realities beyond the political reality in which people are thriving and flourishing. And just remembering that I'm just part of a web of people who are so dedicated and doing this work day in and day out. And on the days when I don't feel hopeful, someone else is holding hope that day. And then I can step in and they can take the break that they need to fall apart and come back in. So it really is just knowing that all I have to do is my part. And also to do my part with joy, I think is what gives me hope. And that might sound a little weird, but I think it's just so important that we infuse this work of justice with the values that we really want to see in the world. And that means finding the joy in it, whether that's through community or laughing with a colleague or, you know, creating a new resource, something that's generative, remembering that it is a fight, but it doesn't have to be miserable while we fight it. Yeah, thank you for reminding us to find joy in this work. I think it's it's too easy to get bogged down by all the hate and forget to find joy. Um, this has been an incredible start to our three-part conversation about pro-choice spiritual perspectives. Katie, you've given us so much to reflect on. And if folks want to go deeper, they can check out your books and website, which we'll link to in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining us, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. And thank you for the work that you all are doing. That That's part of that web I was talking about. So I'm really grateful for the platform that you've created and for covering this. It's not an easy thing to do. So thank you for your bravery and courage, too. Thanks, Katie. So if you enjoyed today's episode, definitely tune in for part two, where Reverend Letitia James takes us deeper into patriarchal origins, purity culture, and the connection between spirituality and pleasure. You've been listening to the Fem South podcast and our six-part series on the impact of the Dobbs decision in Alabama, produced by Fem's Act, an activist wing of Fem South. Fem South is an intersectional book club, community, and podcast, and now activist team dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement and amplifying Southern women's voices.
Our mission is to educate, integrate, and activate. If you would like to learn more about FemSouth, you can follow us on Instagram. You can head over to our link tree and find all the different ways in which you can join our mission and participate. You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we talk about the books that we're reading and provide information about the events that we're sponsoring. As we continue to talk about the important impact of the overturn of Roe, it is important for us to say that we are not here to help anyone in accessing an abortion, and we do not offer any abortion services. If you would like to learn more information, though, you can head over to our link tree on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram at FemSouth. Click on our link tree where you can access our full and comprehensive list of reproductive justice information. You can also find out more information about us by going to femsouth.com. You can reach out to us at femsouth at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com at femsouth or femsouth on Venmo or PayPal. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, you're listening to Femsouth.